Okay, so I'm assuming most of you are here, most of you have your screens on. Wondering how your afternoon is going. And this retreat landia that we're in. So interesting, the, this whole experience of retreating at home. We're sitting in our offices and kitchens and bedrooms and living rooms and garden sheds and places we're not necessarily used to cultivating these qualities of presence and wakefulness and samadhi and and yet here we are in the midst of all that maybe your kids are next door or your family or housemates are you know, watching tv in the next room and you're here Quietly cultivating presence. I look out my window behind the screen, I'm seeing a park full of people playing and walking and talking and, and we're in a kind of a different reality. You know, retreats are kind of an altered reality. Meditation is kind of an altered reality. Good altered reality, hopefully, most of the time, not always. So today I'd like to talk a little about the heart, more about the heart and the quality of responsiveness. So in the Tibetan teachings and some traditions, they talk about three qualities of awareness, the essence being empty, empty of substantiality. Its nature is clarity, the nature of this awareness, luminous, shining, clear, cognizant, knowing, wakeful, present. And the integration of that emptiness and clarity is uh, one way it's described is responsiveness and so I want to talk about the responsive presence or responsive heart there was a great Zen teacher Yun Men and someone asked him in a, in a very Zen, Cohen kind of way, what is awakened action? How does this you know, practice of awakening, how does it manifest? And he said in very simple Zen, uh, minimalistic response, appropriate response, Awakened action is an appropriate response. Appropriate response to the moment. 
appropriate response to what's here. And so I want to speak to you about how this practice of awareness, cultivating mindfulness, cultivating heartfulness, supports our ability uh, and our capacity to be responsive to life, to ourselves, to each other, to the moment. Just like in our practice, in our meditation, you know, you may ask or you may hear others ask questions about meditation and what to do with how to focus and obstacles and challenges. And, and you may hear teachers, us or others, say a whole variety of things. Cultivate this, let go of that, develop that, move a little in this direction, no, move in the other direction. And sometimes the same question can have a, con a contradictory answer. And I think, um, I think it was, I forget, Achen Sumedho or Jack Cornfield, somebody, was was sitting with that chancha who uh, as often happens in a monastery there's times when the abbot just sits with the lay community who come in daily to offer things and then they give teachings and and the and the student i think it was Samedo or jack said uh you know i listened to you Ajahn, and and you know the same question you know, to one person you say, you know, go a little to the left. And then it's another person says the same question. You say, no, go a little to the right. And, you know, what's what? Like, how come you give the seemingly contradictory answer to the same person? Um, and I'm sort of summarizing this story, it's a longer, more detailed story, but basically he's like, you know, I see my job as helping people stay balanced on the path. And sometimes they're veering off to the left and you need to bring them a little more to the right. Sometimes they're veering off to the right and you bring them a little more to the left. And that's wise responsiveness, meeting the conditions of our life. Like in this retreat, you know, sometimes you've been really tired and sleepy and dull, you know, Someone talked about, like, uh, I think it was Raminta woodpecker practice, <laughs> the, the bobbing head, the wailing wall practice. Right? So what's needed is wakefulness, energy, chi, breath, standing, movement, aliveness, curiosity to, to wake up the, the system. And other times, some of you talked about incredibly restless, agitated, because of the mind, because of worrying about family or pandemic or money or just dealing with the stress of being in the present. And what's needed is calm, is balance, is soothing, is relaxation, is softness, is spaciousness. I remember I was on a long retreat. I was working with a lot of very intensely painful uh, emotions, a lot of trauma, a lot of early trauma. And, and it was so painful, I couldn't practice. And 
formal meditation actually just just exacerbated the the conditions and so it was not skillful to to let my mind sort of drop into that focused presence i needed a lot of spaciousness i needed to move i needed to walk i needed to be outside uh i was working with joseph goldstein closely and he loaned me his again i'm dating myself he loaned me my, his sony walkman <laughs> this little cassette player with headphones and some of his music so i was listening to you know albinoni and mozart and brahms mostly walking out in the forest around ims in the snow because that was what i needed to stay balanced with with the intensity that was coming up and i went into an interview with him i said joseph you know all these other yogis meditators you know all sitting and walking getting up at four in the morning meditating all day and here i am you know walking around the woods what's that got to do with practice i feel like a complete failure in my meditation i can't you know it's not it's not skillful for me to sit but that's what i'm i'm on a three-month meditation retreat <laughs> clearly something's wrong with this picture and he said practice is about balance whatever helps you find balance with what's here that is a skillful means that is appropriate practice and if being outside and walking and music or whatever it is that allows you to find balance then that's the right practice for you in the moment for the other yogas on trip probably not the right practice it would be distracting disturbing or whatever and so it was a great teaching for me to to like really blow open this idea of what practice is and what's good practice what's appropriate practice and really what's appropriate practice is a skillful wise and compassionate response to what's here and what's here is life which is vastly changing and so what's needed in response is also a wide range of tools and methodologies and why in buddhist practice as in other spiritual traditions there's a whole panorama of tools meditations forms techniques practices styles to help us cultivate qualities to meet life to meet the ups and downs of life and so you might think reflect for yourself you know what's been arising for you today and what's allowing you to meet what's here so seeing looking at you and seeing where you're sitting and um some of you have cats with you and uh you know maybe a blanket that's very soothing and familiar or a chair or you know where you're seeing you know, there's just many many things that can nourish us so there's a story that i'm sure most of you have heard about ananda the the buddha's uh, attendant and cousin and friend came to him one day and said oh noble one i realized that friendship metta is in the friendship is the is is the half of the spiritual life and the buddha says no no it's the whole of the spiritual life 
And I think about this a lot, this, this statement from the Buddha, friendship, friendliness, maitri, metta, is the whole of the spiritual life, right? That, that attitude of friendliness, kindness towards life. And just like the Dalai Lama talks about, my religion is kindness. And the, the deeper that I walk this path and, and, and life, you know, I see that the that kindness, that care, that loving presence is more and more central. And I think I mentioned in my early practice years, I think it was, I think I mentioned this, that, you know, I wanted to, as, as they say in Buddhism, get off the wheel of samsara which means escape <laughs> suffering, escape the mess of life, escape the turmoil and the existential angst and the uncertainty and the confusion and all of that. And what I wanted to do was transcend, right? And some of that language is in these spiritual teachings to transcend, get off the wheel, but it was coming out of aversion, coming out of repulsion, fear, and just not wanting to be, you know, in this body that had trauma and in this heart that was feeling uh, angst and in this mind that was ripped with judgment and self-hatred. Yeah, I wanted to get off that wheel, as we often do, <clears throat> but that wanting to get off was coming from hatred from aversion, from resistance, from fear, which just generates more fear and more hatred and more contraction, doesn't actually bring any resolution. <clears throat> and so over the years, being humbled as we are by suffering, by pain, by fear, by struggle, that I've learnt slowly, very slowly, as, as we seem to do slowly, that the doorway through is through the heart, through love, through kindness, through compassion, through meeting what's here with an attitude of care, caring presence, loving awareness, kind attention. And so really what I'm speaking to in this, in this talk is this fusion of awareness and love. How these two slowly weave themselves together through practice. And there's a beautiful teaching about this that I, that I take very much to heart. And it says, do not say that awareness and kindness are separate one cannot arise without the other. Awareness is the foundation of kindness. Kindness is the expression of awareness. Awareness is the foundation of kindness. Kindness is the expression of awareness. So just think about that for a moment. What does that mean to you? Awareness, all this week of practicing awareness is the foundation of kindness. How does this awareness, this knowing, this clarity support kindness? How is kindness the expression of that awareness, that knowing? What is that? How would that look for you? What would that mean to you? 
This is a not entirely great expression of this, but it's something that I, I have been very fond of over the years, this piece of writing from uh, Henry Miller, a novelist who started to take up painting later in life. And he said, I remember well the transformation which took place in me when I first began to view the eyes, view the world with the eyes of a painter. The most familiar things and objects which I'd gazed at all my life now became an unending source of wonder and with wonder, of course, affection. A teapot, an old hammer, a chipped cup. Whatever came to hand, I looked upon it as if I'd never seen it before. To paint is to love again, to live again, and to see again. And I think about that with our practice of mindfulness, awareness, that we bring attention with that, with fresh eyes, with beginner's mind. And it may be that you're sitting and you maybe at the end of the sitting, you look down at your hands and it's as if you've never seen your hands before. And you look at them and you see the lines and the wrinkles and the scars and the skin and the bones. And, and there's an affection. It's like, oh, these hands, these nails, these bones and joints, like how amazing, how beautiful, these hands that allow us to touch and, and feel the world and, and, you know, can move and touch another and feel the bark of a tree. And we feel moved with a sense of affection. Or as he says, and I've had this many experience on retreat, I'm sitting at the dining table and I'm just quietly sitting there after a meal and I'm looking down at my teacup or a teaspoon and suddenly feel great affection for this <laughs> saucer or teacup or the beauty and symmetry of a fork. There's just the ordinariness of the world with, with these eyes, these presenceful eyes um, is met with, with an affection, with a, with a kind of being touched. So we begin to gaze at the world with soft eyes, with kind eyes. And in, in doing so, begin to be able to turn those kind eyes, that kind attention to ourselves. And when we can access that more warmer, loving presence, then when we turn or when we, when we experience difficulty, which we do a lot in a day, in a sitting, in a retreat, in our life, when we're feeling stress, or angst, or uncertain, or whatever we might be feeling, that kind presence allows us to, to hold it, to meet it, just as when you know, a friend or a child or a loved one is with us and, and, we're, and they're telling us about their distress and their angst. And what, what's, the, what's, what's available, what comes from us is warmth. We can just soften into where they are and they can soften into where they are. And so we learn to do that with ourselves. I was doing it 
with my kitten this uh, just at the lunch break and we're outside and the usual doorway to get in was closed and one one of our cats is very nervous and always likes the escape route to be clear and it wasn't clear and he was very distressed and I had to scoop him up and hold him and, and it's just a very simple meeting of distress and then the distress usually relaxes either in ourselves or in another. So in the Satipatthana teachings, the mindfulness teachings of the Buddha, the invitation is to bring awareness to the entirety of our experience, to our body, to our heart, to our mind, to our sensations, to the waves of pleasantness, unpleasantness, to the nature of our experience that's changing, that's ungraspable, that's empty, to the contemplation of our own mortality and death. And that's not so easy to do if this quality of loving presence or kindness or warmth is not so available. Why? Because a lot of that experience is hard. So when we're feeling unpleasantness or fear or dread or rejection or deficiency, loneliness, which some of you reported over the days, it's hard to be with that if we're also judging and rejecting it, thinking it shouldn't be happening, pushing it away. Right? So often when we're having an experience and we add that second layer, what the Buddha called the second arrow, the second dart, right? we're feeling anxious or agitated and we look around at all the Zoom screens and we see everyone sitting really still and then the thought comes, oh, I shouldn't be anxious, I should be calm, I should be able to deal with this. Or we, you know, living through this pandemic and we're feeling lonely or, or, or anxious or distressed and we think, oh, I should be able to, I've been meditating all this time, I should be dealing with this the pandemic better than I am, right? So we add a layer of stress that makes the initial stress just so much harder. And so it's so important that we can bring a, a warmth, a friendliness, acknowledging our humanness. Right? I think of the of, of Dharma practice as learning to open to our humanity, learning to open to our innate vulnerability and learning to meet that with kindness. Because the expression of wisdom in meeting that humanness and vulnerability is to be kind, is to be caring. Is to be responsive. This is a poem from Marie Howe. And she's writing to her brother who died of AIDS when he was 28. And she says, Johnny, the kitchen sink has been clogged for days. Some utensil probably fell down there. And the drainer won't work, but smells dangerous. And the crusty dishes have piled up, waiting for the plumber I still haven't called. This is the everyday we spoke of. It's winter again, the sky is a deep headstrong blue, and the sunlight pours through the open living room window because the heat's on too high in here and I can't turn it off. 
for weeks now, driving or dropping a bag of groceries in the street, the bag breaking, I've been thinking, this is what the living do. And yesterday, hurrying along those wobbly bricks in the Cambridge sidewalk, spilling my coffee down my wrist and sleeve, I thought it again. And again, later when buying a hairbrush, this is it. Parking, slamming the car door shut in the cold. What you called that yearning, what you finally gave up. We want the winter to pass and the, we want the spring to come and the winter to pass. We want whoever to call or not call, a letter, a kiss. We want more and more and more of it. But there are moments walking when I catch a glimpse of myself in the window glass, say the window of the corner video store, and I'm gripped by a cherishing so deep for my own blowing hair, chapped face and unbuttoned coat that I'm speechless. I am living. I remember you. There are times when I'm so gripped by cherishing so deep from my own blowing hair and chapped face. Unbuttoned coat, I'm speechless. She's speaking about those moments when that kind-hearted presence emerge and we meet the mess of ourselves. We meet the mess of our humanness right in the midst of the chaos and all the ways we think our life shouldn't be. The dishes piling up in the sink, the heat that won't turn off, the you know, whatever the circumstances that are hard or unwanted. And so the awareness practice that we're doing this resting in knowing awareness presence is one of the conditions, one of the supports for allowing this kind-hearted presence to, to emerge, to, to, move, to, to move from our heart. Because it means we can actually be present to experience and to hold it with a spaciousness. Feel the humanness of it. Feel the hardness and the difficulty of it. I remember many years ago, I went through a phase triggered by some, again, some early, early stuff that got triggered um, when I was actually kind of quite isolated on a writing retreat way up in the middle of nowhere in northern Canada. And um, uh, triggered some very deep anxiety that kind of lodged itself in my nervous system and uh, was very, very uh, kind of racked my body. It was very intense. And, um, and like a good meditator, I tried to meditate it away. <laughs> I tried to do everything I could to get rid of it, spiritually, of course. Um, and nothing worked every day. I'd wake up with this just grip in my solar plexus. It's where I usually feel anxiety, belly, butterflies, throat kind of tight and just unable to settle in my skin, unable to ground in the way that I'd been so familiar for, for decades, actually. And it was, uh, and it went on for months. And, um, and it, like these, like life, like these things in life can be amazing teachers. And what was being called forth was for me to soften 
into my own skin, soften into my belly to bring this loving presence to my body that was racked with fear and anxiety and just to soften and just to allow all of that to be here, not to try and get rid of it, not to try to make it better, but just to learn how to hold a loving presence with it, how to soften into the heart of it and, and to be able to soften in a way that I didn't care whether it was here or whether it went away. And of course, usually when we can surrender in that way, it's usually the condition to allow that whatever that constellation was to soften in itself and it did eventually fade. But it was a, it was a powerful mirror as, as life is and practice is. It mirrors us with that question, how am I meeting this? How am I holding this? How is love infusing my capacity to be here with it? So this is a question I often ask myself, life's invitation, how am I meeting this? How am I struggling, fighting, defending, blaming, avoiding, suppressing? Or can I open? Oh, this too. Oh yeah. This moment, this meditation of feeling hot or irritated or nervous or bored or tired or physically in pain. This is hard. Oh, this is hard. If it's hard, what's called for is a compassionate presence. And so each moment, you know, life is asking of us or inviting us to meet what's here. And moment to moment, we ebb and flow on how well we do that. That's called life. That's called being human. There's no perfect way of doing that. The poem by the Sufi poet Hafez, uh, I forget what it's called. Um, and he says something like, um, you have all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. But of course we do. We have a little bit of physical pain. And then we have some judgment. And then we have some self-pity. And then we're blaming our chiropractor. And then we're blaming the retreat. And we're blaming a stupid meditation. And we're hating our friend who told us meditation was a good idea. And we get into this whole <laughs> cluster of like miserable states. And, and then we remember, oh, what's happening? Oh, right. I'm feeling some tingling unpleasantness in my knee. Right? But we've, we've stirred up a whole pot of ingredients to make ourselves miserable. And then later in the poem, he says, you have all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy, mix them, mix them. And so that's what we do on retreat. That's what we do in practice, right? We're cultivating some presence some patience some kindness some slowing down some warmth some friendliness some metta, some awareness. And as we cultivate those, develop those, we learn to have more ease, more well-being, more, more capacity 
And so having that, the, the, uh, some awareness of how you meet experience. Like right now, as you listen to this talk, whether you're loving it or hating it, bored or curious, happy or sad, tired or energized, how are you with your experience? It's the, one of the mantras that I learned from sitting so much at IMS and doing these three-month retreats, which I did a lot in the 90s. You know, the, the mantra that I kept hearing was, it's not what's happening, but how we relate to it. It's not what's happening, but how you relate to it. Because we have little control over what's happening, but we have a lot of agency over how we meet something. And one of the ways that we can support how we meet life is through draw, calling forth this quality of love, of kindness. And we can do that in formal ways with the Buddhist teachings on the Brahma Viharas, cultivating love, compassion, joy, equanimity. And we can also just uh, call, you know, integrate that kindness into uh, mindfulness practice, into meta practice. Even though they're taught as separate practices, as I may have said before, the, the fruit of a mature practice is that we live more with a kind attention, with a warm presence, with a loving awareness the compassionate attention, right? That those qualities become suffused. And if you think about those qualities, when going back to that idea of what the Buddha said about friendliness is the whole of the spiritual life. If you think about a moment of friendliness or love, a moment of care, right? What, what, what's in that quality, that moment of care, and what's in a moment of mindfulness and you'll find that they're quite similar in a moment of mindfulness there's openness there's curiosity there's non-judging there's knowing there's allowing there's an intimacy of contact there's connection and in a moment of friendliness also openness allowing receptivity non-judgment connection the kindness has, you know, you could say more warmth suffused into it, but very similar, share a lot of qualities. This is from Joanna Macy, a wonderful Dharma teacher. She says, the Dharma path strikes me as profoundly erotic. Not often said about the Dharma path. Anyhow, Buddhism teaches us to pay attention. And if you mindfully put your attention on anything, you find love arising for whatever it is anything you put your attention on it and it reveals itself to you mary oliver beautiful nature poet said something similar she said there is nothing in this world if i pay attention to long enough doesn't cease to foster wonder and with wonder of course love if there is anything i have that doesn't do that i haven't found it yet and so hopefully in our practice, as we attend to our breath and to our hands and to our footsteps and to our body and its movements and the heart and its waves and the mind and its flickering, 
as we attend to it, hopefully what arises is an affection, is a familiarity, is a warmth, is a tenderness. And maybe you found as you cultivate these qualities of presence in your day, and maybe you've been sitting all morning and you step outside and maybe you're having your lunch outside or you're taking a walk and and maybe you notice the same old oak tree that's outside your house that you've seen for 15 years and just there's the oak tree but with that moment of presence you go oh there's a beautiful living breathing being that's unique and precious or maybe you see a bird as i was doing this morning, uh, I throw out bird seed out my window here and feed the birds on the roof. <clears throat> the chickadees were feeding and just this precious, tender fragility. And <laughs> the two cats were just like glued to the window. <laughs> and the birds were oblivious, just, you know, pecking away and just, you know, the sweet funness. At Spirit Rock, we have when the days when we have physical retreats the swallows come back in the spring and they nest and they create those beautiful spittle nests and they usually above the bathroom door and uh, inside the nest is usually like three or four little um, baby uh, baby swallows and they're kind of shivering, they're popping their heads up and looking for their mama and papa for food and, and just melts the heart, just melts the heart. I went downstairs at lunchtime and my uh, ginger tabby cat was lying asleep in the sun on <laughs> on this windowsill where it's like part of the kitchen and just like this just pure surrender pure trust <laughs> and just like cracks the heart open right when 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 there's an when there's a sensitivity when there's an openness when there's presence we're much more likely to be touched much more likely to feel warmth or tenderness. And, and of course, then we can bring this warmth or caring tenderness to the, the circumstances we meet. I want to share a story. This is a story from in my last book, From Suffering to Peace, from a student. And um, this is from a student whose uh, husband has been undergoing intense cancer therapy um, and was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And it was very unclear whether he was going to make it. And so the, and they'd be going in for regular tests to see how his cancer was progressing. And there was a very stressful time as I'm sure many of you know. And she writes, there were moments leading up to hearing the results that are most challenging. Will this be the day the scans light up, she wonders. What if I have to raise our kids alone? It's the bus ride that incites anxiety. It used to be worse. The sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach, heart racing, gulping in breath, dizziness, thinking that I might be losing my mind. I used to get myself so worked up before these scans that I could barely lock my front door because my hands shook so much. Don't get me wrong, these feelings still come, but I'm not afraid of them anymore. I know it's just my body's way of trying to prepare and protect me from what information may come when we reach Dr. Kim's office. But for now, we're on the bus and John, John interlaces his beautiful, strong hand in mine. 
I sense the warm in his fingers. I notice all the places where our bodies are touching as we sit side by side. We are hip to hip on this journey and always heart to heart. I close my eyes. I breathe deeply into this feeling of connectedness. And then that becomes the emotion, love. The anxiety has subsided and it's been replaced with love. How did that happen? It happened because I leaned into the discomfort. I allowed myself to physically feel it. Not the story, the catastrophizing and the what ifs, only the feeling. That's the only thing, that's the thing with emotions. They must be felt in your body. If you avoid, numb or block them, they don't go away. They fester and become monsters. Don't create monsters. Be, befriend your fears. Get curious, stay present to your physical experience. They feel uncomfortable and scary as hell, but they want to be felt, that's all. The clenched stomach, the sweaty armpits, the racing heart, stay with them, watch what happens. There's a shift, there's always a shift. That's how this whole mindfulness thing works. So I love that story because, you know, here she is in the midst of a very terrifying situation of finding out about her husband's diagnosis, which could mean she's left alone and left raising kids alone and the body's freaking out. And through her practice, she's learned to bring awareness, presence, kind presence. And in that meeting, something shifts, something that the anxiety, the fear can, can move, can transform itself. But as she's pointing to, and as we know from our experience, this isn't easy, right? Pain, the nature of pain takes us to the edge, the edge of our practice, the edge of our capacity. And so each time that we encounter an edge, whether it's around emotion, whether it's around a physical difficulty, whether it's about a life situation, the pandemic, loneliness, right? it's an edge and, the, and it sometimes feels like we're gonna break at the edge. Usually we break open at the edge or we, or we, we break open and we soften into the edge. That's why we practice. We practice to be able to lean into and open to these difficult places. And I feel tremendous gratitude for, um, you know, sitting, you know, for endless hours in meditation over endless years, seemingly, that builds this kind of tenacity, builds this steadiness, builds this patience. And what we learn to do is, is lean in, is to turn towards. I think of this as a very significant point of practice and uh, um, distinction from, from conventional ways of being with experience. Conventional ways of being experienced. If something's unpleasant, difficult, or painful, you run away from it. You get the hell away from it. You distract your, yourself from it with these teachings of awareness, the invitation is to turn towards, to lean in, to soften into, to surrender open. And so I ask of you, what is hard to lean into? What's hard to open to? <clears throat> So 
just a <clears throat> poem I wrote about this turning towards. It's called Your Only Duty. Your only duty is not to run from here, from this, even if the whole of loss burns deep in your belly and on waking you feel the dread of walking into the day empty and exposed. You could pretend, try putting on a face other than your own, but that's a game that's never worked. Only, but that's a game that's never worked, making the shell you've chosen to live in even more hollow. But there are times when there's no choice but to surrender, to turn towards your loneliness and the empty places lying within you've spent a lifetime running from, embracing them with delicate hands of love, the way the evening fog envelops the solitary tree without flinching, pressing into every gnarled crevice, every twisted branch, even the forgotten needles fallen to the ground. This is the first steps that begins the first, the slow journey into completeness, keeps inviting you deeper into the roots of yourself, claiming your place that is waiting, that is always right here. And so this is the invitation. And I, I write about fog because I live in a foggy area and many, many, many nights of the year, the fog comes in and just slowly, patiently permeates, seeps into, touches, embraces, anything and everything with its embrace. And that's the capacity of awareness to soften into, to lean into, and to be permeated and to permeate experience with awareness, with kindness, not to fix, not to get rid of, not to necessarily even change, but just to, oh, Oh, today I wake up and there's depression, or today there's vulnerability, or in this meditation there's sadness, or there's loneliness, or this meditation there's feeling unworthy or tender. Okay, so let's soften into this. You know, like we've been saying, awareness is vast, has the capacity to hold any weather. And so we turn moment to moment, leaf by leaf, slowly turning, opening into what's here. And we suffuse that attention with as much warmth or as kindness as we can. <clears throat> this is from uh, uh, Darlene Cohen, a meditation teacher who has had a, a debilitating illness for many, many years uh, before she passed. And she says, people sometimes ask me where my own healing energy comes from. Here, how in the midst of this pain, this implacable, slow crippling, can I encourage myself and other people? My answer is that my healing comes from the pain itself. It comes from the shadow. I dip into it and am flooded with its healing energy. Despite the renewal and vitality it gives me to face my deepest fears, I don't go willingly when they call. I've been around this a million times. First, I feel a despair, but I deny it for a few days. Then its tugs become ins more insistent in proportion to my resistance. Finally, it overwhelms and pulls me down, kicking and screaming. It's clear I'm caught. So at last, I give up to this reunion with my 
adjustment to pain and loss, immediately the release begins. First peace and then the flood of vitality and healing energy. I can never just give up though to it when I first feel it stir. You'd think after a million times with a happy ending, I could give up right away and say, take me, I'm yours, but I never can. I always resist. I guess that's why it's called despair. If you went willingly, it would be called something like purification or renewal or something hopeful. It's staring defeat and annihilation in the face that's so terrifying, but I've come to trust it deeply. It's enriched my life, informed my work, and taught me not to fear the pain. So I love this story because she's speaking to really being in the trenches of, of life, in this case, physical pain and slow crippling. And yet she's able to turn in, open to, soften, and, and the loving presence is what supports that journey. And so over time, as I said, as this loving presence becomes more part of our being, it becomes more available. When pain, when stress, when fear, when loss, when anxiety comes, it's, it's more immediate, it's more available. That's, that's what happens when we practice. Well, these qualities that are innate, but we're learning to develop them, become more available. And as they become more available to ourselves, they also become more available to others. We're able to, to bring that same tender-hearted response to the suffering that we meet in friends, loved ones, strangers, the world. You know, there's a tremendous amount of suffering in the world. And so the more that we can bring that wise, kind presence, the more effective we are going to be meeting the world, meeting suffering. So, so as I'm speaking and as me reflecting, just again, just reflecting on for yourselves, what's your experience of this quality of loving presence? And what allows you to bring it forth? Perhaps these practices that we're doing of awareness, kindness, metta, compassion, forgiveness. of being courageous enough to turn towards the difficult and allowing that to transform us. And I'll close with a, a reading poem from uh, Lynn Ungar called Pandemic. I'll just read part of it. What if you thought of this as the Jews consider the Sabbath the most sacred of times, ceasing from traveling, from buying and selling. Just give up, just for now, on trying to make the world different than it is. Sing and pray, touch only to those to whom you commit your life. Center down, and when your body has become still, reach out with your heart. Know that we are connected in ways that are terrifying and beautiful. Know that our lives are in one another's hands. Do not reach out your hands, reach out your heart, reach out your words, reach out all the tendrils of compassion that move invisibly where we cannot touch. Promise this world your love for better or worse, 
in sickness and in health, as long as we shall live. I think that's a beautiful poem in which the spirit to meet this life, to meet the pandemic, to meet the challenges of this time. So let's sit together for a few moments just to let those words settle in the body and the being. Reach out your heart, reach out your words, reach out all the tendrils of compassion that move invisibly where we cannot touch. Promise this world your love for better or for worse in sickness and in health, so long as we shall live. friends. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.